I think the only way you can really translate this word Zheng, that certainly was around, but it's really as closer to like clinical presentation, a little bit closer to the word symptom, if you will. Although symptom was a, is a new term that comes from Western medicine and that becomes, to get into the academic argument, that becomes sort of like the wedge that sort of helps to, to separate Zheng as a pattern. And this is sort of come from Ted Kapchuk is sort of, at least that's the term other people use syndrome or manifestation, but that, that notion of pattern it's really sort of a post, it really is emerges in the 1950s. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. You know those images of emperors, ministers, generals, and the other officials of state that we used to talk about Chinese medicine? I'm not sure why we do that, because if we talked in our everyday life, using these archaic hierarchical terms, our friends would probably disown us for holding up a structure of privilege and oppression. Why do we continue to talk about our medicine with terminology that we reject in everyday life? Are we being intellectually lazy or somehow not able to take the processes of the organs and elements and put it into our modern way of thinking? I've been noodling on this. Because when I talk to my patients about their liver being like a general or their heart being like an emperor, mostly it doesn't quite land for my patients. Yeah, they will often enough go along in a polite way, but I feel like I lose some credibility. So I'm playing around with other ways to talk about organ function in a way that more matches up with the shared experience of modern life. Here's a few ideas that I've been playing with. The liver is Amazon.com. Traditionally, the liver is considered to be a general. How many of us say these words in clinic? The liver is like the general when talking Chinese medicine, but in daily life, outside of our clinical walls, we have a dislike of the military and little respect for generals. Metaphors don't work well when you have a bad opinion about the character of the metaphor. So when trying to explain the way that the liver can strategize and handle logistics, how it with military precision can store and move things around, mm, Amazon.com, for me, that fits the bill. Want to talk about a healthy liver function? Lean on Amazon. It works pretty well in my experience. Now, here in the United States, we kicked royalty out of our culture about 250 years ago. Bringing up the idea of the king these days, it veers more into fairy tale than give a firm footing for the idea that there's an aspect of us that is authoritative, protective, and communicative. I have a hard time with a air quotes here, king, who is withdrawn from the world because he can't corrupt himself with the daily lives of people that he supposedly looking out for. So he has his minister attend to the daily affairs because he's busy communicating with the divine on behalf of the people. I'm not buying it. First, because I've yet to see a head of state actually behave this way. And secondly, because regardless of the game you play, it's better to have skin in the game. A king that says he's doing work for the people without being connected to the people, somehow that doesn't add up. I'm thinking 
the heart is more like a local merchant, someone who is connected to the community through relationship and exchange. That business owner who seems to know everyone in the neighborhood, the one who in serving a community also creates a community. That is what the heart seems like to me. How about you? Do you have any ideas about taking the character and functions of the liver and the heart and talking about it in a way that doesn't lean on thinking like a resident of the Han Dynasty? If so, let me know. I'll be sure to share it here on the podcast sometime in a future episode. Because Chinese medicine has been around for a long time, it's easy to imagine that the medicine we practice today would be recognizable to a doctor from a thousand years ago. Turns out, what you do in clinic today would be incomprehensible to a Republican-era doctor from just a hundred years ago. The core of what you learned in school and proudly practiced in terms of treating the pattern, that was an innovation from the 1960s. There's a lot that I did not know about our recent history. And reading Eric Karshmer's Prescriptions for Virtuosity, The Post-Colonial Struggle of Chinese Medicine, it was both illuminating and it helped me to better appreciate the curious medicine that we practice. We'll be getting into this and more in a moment with Eric. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. 
please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pomsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Eric Karshmer, welcome back to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. I am so looking forward to this conversation. You wrote a book. The book is, uh, I'm, I'm going to plug your book for a second because it's an amazing book. And we've actually talked a little bit about some of, of the things that are in this book in previous podcasts. The title is, uh, is uh, Prescriptions for Virtuosity, Post-Colonial Struggle of Chinese Medicine. Now you sound like a social justice warrior here. Anyway, this is an amazing book. I think any practitioner or student is going to find this utterly fascinating. It helps to take the medicine that that we practice and kind of put it in a context. You know, often we like to think, oh, we're completely connected to the ancients in an unbroken chain back to Zhang Zhongjing. And it's more like a patchwork of things that have come down and have had their own influences through time and culture and governments and just influences of other countries, technology, goes on and on and on. Absolutely. You know, the book was in many ways kind of a journey for me. Well, I wrote it for doctors and, and, I, and I try to and I talk about that actually in the introduction, but it was also a uh, began as a dissertation and and it's a book also for anthropologists and historians of Chinese medicine so it's kind of tries to write to both the audiences which uh, which isn't easy <laughs> because they 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 want different things yeah well part of its fascination for me is as a practitioner there's things that I glean from it that I find helpful as not being an anthropologist it gives me a view into a world that's there but I'm usually not paying attention to it now, you've got kind of a weird origin story because you originally went to China. 
not to study medicine, but you originally went to China back in, I think, the 90s as an anthropology student to study like Chinese medicine doctors in an anthropological kind of way. That's right. I, I really backed into the profession a little bit. I mean, the 90s doesn't, I don't know if it, it's a long time ago, but, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know that I knew a lot about, I was very interested in China, but I didn't, it just didn't occur to me that you could really study Chinese medicine and have a practice and, and be a clinician and not just, it seemed too far away. I don't think it was that far away, but it was, we already had schools in the U.S. back then, but they weren't on my radar. So, But I was fascinated with China and getting into anthropology as a grad student, and that was, you know, so I, I went to do research on it, not knowing just how difficult that would be, <laughs> uh, the, 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 re the research part of it. So you decided to learn the medicine instead because it was easier. Uh, I mean, that, that is a little bit of a funny story. I did. It was. It was something you keep. You can't do. You couldn't possibly do it now. It would be. Uh, I think almost impossible. At least the academic part of it, because I was already. I had started grad school in the early nineties. I'd actually spent a little time in China and also in Taiwan in the late eighties, and that's what sort of propelled me to grad school. And so the early nineties, I was doing grad school, kept doing all my coursework, preparing to come back for field work. And again, kind of fascinating with Chinese medicine, but it wasn't really on, on my radar as a career. It was perhaps something I could do research about. Uh, and then once I started doing it, I mean, there was a, a lot of factors and I'm happy to tell you all the details if you want, but sort of one thing led to another. And the further, the more I got into it, the more I realized just how difficult it would be to write this book, which then took me years and years and years to write. And in some ways, Becoming the practitioner became a goal as I was going along, and uh, that was actually almost more manageable than just the book and the research. And then the then that that I sort of came back to the academic part of it later in the early two thousands. Uh, that's the short version. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's so fascinating. You you go as an anthropologist, you end up like going native. <laughs> you know, you learn the medicine as a doctor in Chinese in Beijing, right? That's pretty close to the source. And then you come back as an anthropologist and a practitioner. And, and you know, years later, we have this, this book that only someone like you that's traveled in these two worlds, and I'm going to get into two worlds here in a moment, because you talk a lot about the two worlds of East and West of like of science and tradition, and you articulate changes that have happened in our medicine. So let me just give you a quick example. Practitioners of the Republican era in China, right? Roughly 100 years-ish ago, only 100 years. That's like an eye blink for Chinese history. I suspect they would look at us today and scratch their heads like, Chinese medicine? Like, we don't understand what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the um, more remarkable parts of, of the research. And to maybe backfill a few steps, you know, so I, I went to kind of first do an, anthrop an anthropology PhD, started doing it, realized just how hard that would be. And for a moment, I was like, well, maybe I'll just be kind of after a year or two of kind of taking classes. I think I, it's also important to remember there, mentioned there was a couple of books, one by uh, my advisor, Judith Farquhar. And then around that time when I was studying uh, Volker Scheid, was just finishing up uh, his book, 
uh, first his dissertation, but then his book came out called the, just, I think, Contemporary Chinese Medicine. And uh, when I saw Fulcher's dissertation, I was like, well, I don't think I have anything else to add. So we might as well, I'll, I'll, focus, I'll focus on the uh, being the practitioner. <laughs> it's done. Somebody did that job. I, I, re- I really felt like the two of them had done that. Uh, Volker, uh, what, what I did when I finally did get to meet him uh, in Beijing, I told him that he said, "Oh, well, don't don't feel too bad because that's exactly how I felt reading Judith Farquhar's book." He said, "You'll figure something out." That and, uh, and it, 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 it took a little while, but I did. And so I did have this moment where I really focused on just uh, learning to be a practitioner, and I was like. Maybe I go back to anthropology, maybe I don't, but it was kind of good for me in the, in the late 90s. Just to, And I enjoyed it so much. And it was also, a special, I think, kind of a special time to be in China. The late 90s was really a, really a very dynamic time. It wasn't terribly expensive, so I could, I, ha, I, was, I could kind of do a few odd jobs and afford to kind of continue going to school there. Grad schools were, I was at UNC Chapel Hill, were a little bit more flexible. And there was still enough flexibility for me to kind of extend my time. And I took like multiple years leaves of absence and which you, you would never be allowed to do uh, in these days that it's very strict you know you've got eight years and then, then that's it and so things kind of lined up to allow me to do that and again kind of I was ready to put aside the anthropology degree even uh, and when I got to the very end of the training and I finally got into the hospital and I really saw what's going on in the hospital and that was kind of maybe one of this I didn't know that was coming but that was one of the really special privileges of of kind of going through the program in China was I got to see how how hybrid, how mixed uh, things were. And then, because we had to do all this Western medicine training, which kind of confused me. Uh, and then I saw, okay, here's how it all comes together, or here's how doctors are bringing it together. And then uh, at that moment, suddenly the anthropology seemed really relevant. And that's when I said, that's that um, when I finish, I'll go back and try to complete the degree. Um, although it still took Quite some time, and I got lucky. And even after finishing the degree, I had more. Uh, so you just referred to sort of the Republican era. I was able to get some more research money, head back to China, and I got to do probably the most exciting part of the book was really it's really chapter one, which is all these interviews with these um, very senior elderly doctors who were in their eighties and nineties at the time, and really got a picture of kind of Republican era medicine. Uh, which then kind of, I also got to follow that on with some more kind of like historical research on that period as well. And that allowed the kind of like the two pieces, the clinical training to come together with sort of some of that historical and oral history work. And that ultimately sort of like made the argument about. Isn't it funny how we can set off on one particular path. It takes us to a place Now we're in a different place. We kind of look around like, oh, there's these other things. Hmm, That's interesting. I think I'll head this direction. And it's easy to think, okay, I've left left this other thing behind. But you're actually taking this long, circuitous route back to it. And because of that, like, walk way out into the weeds, you've got all this stuff you would not otherwise have had. And it's incredibly helpful. So... Tell us a little bit about these old doctors that you interviewed and like what their life was like. What was it like being a Republican-era doctor? What was the landscape there, their challenges? I mean, Western medicine was just beginning to really come into China in a big way. And, you know, it's really helpful for lots of things. And so now we've got this new force, so to speak, this new influence – 
coming from outside. It's coming around the time of the, you know, just after the, well, sort of commensurate with and, and after the fall of the Qing dynasty. So you've got all this trouble and change in China. And now you got Western medicine coming into the mix as well. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's, um, like I said, that, that was uh, one of the, f- the funnest parts of the book was getting, and I interviewed about 40 different doctors, really from all over China. And these were many of, uh, they may, the names may not be too familiar to folks in the U.S., although some, some of them will, but they're very familiar. They're sort of, it's sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of, of at least contemporary doctors for Chinese medicine. Um, and in fact, that's how I was able to find a lot of the doctors, just because they they were famous. I'm sure there was other ones that were still alive, but who were, were less so. But that just, you know, the, it wasn't like there was a, a phone book I could open up. So, but the people who were known were the ones that I could sort of track down. And uh, and then not, of course, some of them were very old and and really too sick to really, or too frail to be interviewed. But but some some were, some were still, still healthy and, and, and open to talking to what I think would have seemed to them to be some sort of random American scholar. But uh, one of the things I've found, and this kind of maybe gets to a little bit the academic side of the book, was that the stories they told were all very different than what you might read in most of your history books. So if we look, take a look at the academic side of uh, research in Chinese medicine, there's actually not a whole lot of anthropologists. There's, a, there's sort of a handful, uh, but Judy Farquhar and Volker Scheider are uh, who I just mentioned are, are two of the very, very good ones. But there's a lot, a large number of historians. And one interesting thing about the historians is, you know, it's starting to change maybe now, but almost all the historians don't really have a lot of training in Chinese medicine. So some of your listeners will be familiar with Volker. Volker is a practitioner. Uh, Judy Farquhar is not, but I am. So anthropologists are a little bit more interested in kind of getting, but Judy, but Judy did study for uh, a good year and a half in China. So she got to see things up close in the early 80s. But there's most historians are are great historians, but a little bit less knowledgeable about the, the clinical stuff. And if you kind of read some of their accounts of the Republican period or the late Qing period, to me, it's really missing that clinical side of the story. And that's what I think the doctors gave to me and uh, were able to tell me about. And what I discovered was that actually it was more different. It was not the story that you were really reading about from your historians. And that difference persisted really up until, I'd say, the 1950s. Uh, so we do have we have lots of accounts from historians of like Chinese, excuse me, of Western medicine kind of making its way into China in the 19th century, first through missionary doctors, then through some translations, and then finally we have for those of you, your listeners who are kind of into like early, early 20th century writings on um, by Chinese medicine doctors, you do have a handful of, of very famous doctors who do write about sort of Western medicine and Chinese medicine and, and trying to combine them. But what I found through the interviews is that uh, the presence of Western medicine was so far, uh, it was so, uh, there was so much less of it that you would, then you would think from reading all this historian, all those his, uh, historical accounts. So, um, in fact, one, the, one of the first doctors I interviewed, just, he uh, shocked me because I, we, we often hear about sort of um, political struggles between the two camps and there, and there's, there certainly did exist, but what we don't realize is that there are sort of struggles at the very sort of most elite sort of upper echelons of of political power at that moment. But for for the average doctor, they really knew very little about Western medicine. And I remember asking one of my first interviewers, well, why, why would you why would you want to study Chinese medicine when so many doctors of Western medicine were attacking it? And he responded, like, oh, it's just a kid from the countryside. 
I had no idea there was a whole other type of medicine. I just knew the medicine my uncle was teaching me. And so you heard that kind of story again and again. And so I think throughout the countryside of China, right up until into the 40s, there was essentially no Western medicine or very little or things like nurses who were sort of retired paramedics from the army who had a little bit of knowledge, but they weren't great clinicians. So the really good clinicians in the countryside, but also to a large extent in the cities were really doctors of Chinese medicine. And another thing to keep in mind too, is that you know we often, and this is I think a, a challenge with some of the historical accounts is that we often read sort of Western medicine as it is today, as we, as we uh, know it today, back into that history of the early 20th century. And Western medicine was just a very different thing back then. It's ch it changed so rapidly after World War II with you know the development of antibiotics, but CTs and all kinds of technologies and emergency care interventions and all, all kinds of things that just uh, we take for granted now, but just didn't exist. So one of the things you get either both from reading, if you kind of read some of the literature and you kind of like can erase some of those previous biases uh, or just speak to some of these doctors as I, as I had the opportunity to, we just realized that Chinese medicine was the big game in town. And so one of the things I talked about in that chapter one was that the, all the doctors were very busy treating all kinds of acute infectious diseases, things like cholera, smallpox, uh, typhoid fever, malaria, which were, and, and all of those things, and all of those kind of descriptions were, I have to say, were totally shocking to me because when I was in the hospital, anytime we saw an, an acute case, we saw, I really saw doctors of Chinese medicine really scrambling to kind of like treat first with Western medicine, just get this patient under control. And then when they're stabilized or something like that, maybe we'll use our Chinese medicine. The story from the Chinese, from those older doctors was that, oh no, we were the first line of defense clinically speaking. People came to us and they expect, not only that, they expected results quickly. So we also have this idea that Chinese medicine works very slowly uh, and, that's, and it, sometimes it does, but it does when you're treating chronic conditions, which often take a long time to develop and therefore take a long time to, to correct. But people also back in the, in the 20s, 30s and what have you, didn't have time for treating their chronic conditions. They just needed to treat, they had to treat the dengue fever or whatever that was like putting them flat on their back. And so, um, and they, ex they expected results quickly and and all these doctors said, and if you, you couldn't get results with a, a couple of treatments or two, patients didn't come back. Right. So it's not like today, come in 10 times and maybe that'll help. No, these docs were treating acute illness and people expected results and doctors got famous because they could treat certain kinds of acute illness. And yeah, Western medicine didn't have everything in its fabulous arsenal back then that it does today. And so Chinese medicine was a superior medicine. And the thing that, I mean, there's so much that's fascinating, but this idea that we have today that, and you hear it in China too, this, this would really, I mean, I was there in the early 2000s and I'd hear Chinese people say, oh, you know, if you have an acute issue, Western medicine, right? If you have a chronic issue, Chinese medicine. And I'm thinking, you're Chinese and you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You don't understand Chinese medicine, right? Uh, well, you know, there's a, there's also a kind of, and this brings you back to the contemporary moment, there are, but there are a lot of pressures on doctors in the hospitals not to screw up. I mean, to put it kind of very, very bluntly. So when something acute comes along, they don't really want to mess with uh, a Chinese medicine treatment, which they don't have a lot of experience with. 
and they don't want to just sort of say, I'm, I mean, and I would even ask doctors as, as a student, you know, I was like, okay, this person's got an infection, but, and I see you just prescribe some antibiotics. And I, I mean, I, I understand the rationale behind that, but, you know, could you, would it be possible to treat this just with, you know, an herbal medicine prescription? And the response I got was maybe, but we're not going to do that. That's, I believe that it could be possible, but like, what if we do that and it doesn't work? Like, we'll get all the blame. We haven't followed standard protocols. There's no upside for kind of like fighting some battle that we romantically may want to fight, but in reality, in the clinic, in the sort of the, the realities of the hospital and kind of just, you know, keeping, maintaining some sort of clinical standards, that's just putting your license, your career on the line. Sure. You're, you're putting yourself in danger. We have the same thing here. If it's acute and Western medicine has uh, a solution for it, maybe even if it doesn't, still, it's like you go to the ER because if you attempt that and it doesn't go well, you could lose your license and your reputation. But beyond that, we don't know how to do that anymore. There were things that those doctors could treat. They knew how to treat. We don't have it. When did that kind of, when did we lose that? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I, and I don't think I have the most complete answer to it, but the, the answer, some of the answers that it did get were sort of by the, is that certainly things started to change in the 1950s. And of course, you have some very experienced doc doctors. Uh, the people I interviewed, remember, would have been still relatively young. Uh, in the 1950s, they might have been in their 40s, let's say, or they might have been in their in their, in their 30s. And now uh, you also started younger too. So a lot of times, if you're doing an apprenticeship, you started when you're a teenager and you're kind of practicing by your early 20s. And so you may have 10 years or 15, 20 years of experience. So you might be quite quite good by the time. So some of those younger doctors who I still got a chance to talk to were, were probably already quite experienced when they got to the 50s. But and there's obviously ones who are older than them as well. But Part of what happened also is that you have the introduction of hospitals of Chinese medicine, which didn't really exist prior to that. So prior to 1949, most doctors were operating in a private clinical practice, not that unlike what people do probably in the US today. But so hospitals are sort of being invented in the 1950s, if you will, more or less. That's that's a, a, a bit of a good statement, but that's more or less true. And they're being they're being invented for, for Chinese medicine, and they're being modeled, of course, on a hospital of Western medicine. And from the very beginning, Western medicine doctors were involved, and also administrators themselves often may have, or quite likely, were people with with a with some sort of biomedical training, some sort of background too. And uh, that so from the very beginning, there was a sort of a set of biomedical standards that kind of came in with the hospital, and it was very important to kind of meet them. And I, and some doctors, you know, told me that basically you essentially weren't. A, I think it's Lee Genial told me that if you you know, in his hospital in Wuhan, if you know anyone came in with a fever, immediately administrators were sort of saying, that's going to be for our biomedical doctors to treat. Doctors of Chinese medicine aren't going to touch that patient. And so those are situations where the older doctors knew how to treat it, would have had a method, probably would have been very successful at it, but it just couldn't teach it to the younger doctors. And so pretty quickly, that kind of is lost. Uh, and then, of course, by the mid-1960s, you also have the Cultural Revolution. So it's even more disruption in terms of what you know, what can be passed on, and what is possible to preserve and not. So, so I really think kind of by the, the late fifties and the early sixties, the trend was set. Uh, and of course, another important fact is that the Chinese government at the time was was really trying to 
build uh, a national healthcare system, if you will. It wasn't there weren't a whole lot of hospitals of Western medicine either, so or a lot of doctors of Western medicine, and so a lot of resources from the government were being put into building those those institutions, training those doctors. Uh, now, they were also making hospitals of, of Chinese medicine as well, but the resources were really going towards towards building biomedicine or toward the Western. So you use, uh, there's a dichotomy in your book. You, you talk about a number of different dualisms. And, and one of them that you bring up is purity versus hybrid, which I think is really interesting. And what I'm hearing you say with these hospitals of Chinese medicine, they were basically administered and built by people who had a Western medicine background. So already you've got that influence seeping in. They were from the beginning a kind of hybrid practice. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That's, that's right. So from, from, the be from the beginning, it is very hybrid. And uh, from the beginning of the, of the communist period, and so it's important to point out that Prior to that time, that hybridity, uh, there was some of it was there. So, but in a very different context. So, beginning with the fifth, kind of the mid fifties and on, you have sort of a state-driven uh, imperative, if you, if you will, to build a certain kind of hospital with certain with certain kinds of protocols, which then require that the hospitals for Chinese medicine will have both Chinese medicine and Western medicine. That didn't exist in the Republican period, although you did have. But it's a super interesting period. So you did have very interesting scholars. Uh, so to me, uh, one of the joys is also reading some of the writings by these folks who they're, they're cited. Uh, I cite them very widely in it's probably chapter three and four, maybe uh, folks like uh, Yung Tia Chao or, or Lu Yale or um, a few others who were fascinating people who were more or less sort of self-taught, if you will, in biomedicine extremely knowledgeable in Western medicine, also extremely knowledgeable in sort of classics. They're sort of, if you will, the, they're maybe the, the last generation of people to really be trained in kind of the Confucian classics in a way that would go away with kind of a, a modern education system. They, they weren't quite training for like your, their civil service exam that ends in, in 1905. But some of those traditions of, of scholarship carried on, and these were people who were 
deeply knowledgeable in that way and, and a little bit, but also sort of getting a lot of training in, in modern modern science and a whole bunch of sort of new ideas that are coming in from the West. But those are folks who are sort of like trying to find ways to like bring in ideas from Western medicine to improve their Chinese medicine or help or re rethink the classics or innovate in some ways that were still really focused on Chinese medicine. In the communist period, so that's already some hybridity there, but with a in the Republican period, but with an emphasis on Chinese medicine. In the communist period, it's uh, hybridity is sort of like state driven, if you will, or state a state imperative, and it's really a requirement of kind of the way you're going to see patients in a, in, a, in a clinical setting. And so, and I think what happens, and so you mentioned the, uh, these ideas of purity and hybridity. You get a lot of mixing, but at the same time, you also have. Uh, and this is where I said some of the other historical work that's been done, and there's some very good historical work, so I don't mean to be like sort of trashing all of that. There's some amazing historical work that's been done on the public period. But what you see that's happening in the, in the communist period is you see sort of a narrowing. And if you were to read some of these other historians, I think Brady Andrews and Sean Lay are maybe two of my favorite about the Republican period. They can give you a description of like a whole range, a whole an incredible diversity of practice, not just sort of the elite literate scholar doctors, if you will, uh, but they can kind of describe like a, a real range of practices that are have maybe more based in Buddhist monasteries or religious practices or just like granny shamans and things like that. A lot of that gets eliminated, washed away, or sort of narrowed down. And so if Chinese medicine becomes more narrow and professional, and it's much more in dialogue with a Western medicine profession. And so this big, diverse, amorphous thing that we might call Chinese medicine, but you that's using the term for much more broadly than we used it back then, all that becomes narrowed down to this thing that is both sort of um, set up in a kind of kind of relationship with professional biomedicine today. And so the, the two are sort of in a dialogue, in particular, the Chinese medicine doctors very much in a dialogue with Western medicine. And because also the doctors are now learning both, that's just the, the, the huge difference. Now in the beginning of the 1950s and then on, you need to learn both, just like I just like I did. So you're learning both, and so you're in your mind. You're, uh, and then of course, if you're doing your practice, you're in a constant dialogue between the the two things. This is what you do in Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine does, or this is what you do in Western medicine. Chinese medicine is this way, or this is how you mix them together. And so you're always either going back and forth, or sort of purifying them and separating them. And Chinese medicine becomes changes and shifts in that whole sort of process of. Uh, this weird dialogue where you're both opposed to Western medicine because there's got to be something different about it, right? We've got to be Chinese. We've got to have our special characteristics. There's a, the word in Chinese would be tudian that people would talk about a lot when I was a student. Got to have our tudian. Yeah, we've got to be have our special point, our, our, our special thing, our special point, the thing that makes us unique. Yeah, so we have to be both unique, but also similar enough that there's a way to combine them somehow, similar enough that they we can't, you can't call us non-scientific. I think that was a always a big fear. Uh, always was. Um, I mean, maybe that's maybe there's a little bit of a shift in that too. But always heard uh, doctors, you know, saying it. Chinese. They, they wanted to make sure that I understood this. Chinese medicine is scientific, uh, and so there's there was a always a fear of being called, you know, superstitious or non-scientific or you know something that's you know less solid in Chinese medicine. Again, kind of by definition, it is going to be all the less solid stuff. <laughs> yes. So this, you know, we we run into this too here. I think in our modern moment, I think there's a lot of fear about being considered non-scientific. 
folks often will like to point to research that says, look, see, see, Chinese medicine works. See, Chinese medicine is useful for this. See, we are scientific. How do we know we're scientific? We have research on Chinese medicine that proves that we're scientific. But I've also, I've, I've heard, uh, Brenda Hood has said this to me, and it just kind of landed, and I thought, ooh, I think she's right. She said, you know, Chinese medicine is not completely rational. <laughs> right? She's not saying it's irrational, and she's not saying that it's not scientific. She's saying it's not completely rational. And you're laughing. What are you laughing about? Well, I'm laughing. I know, I know Brenda. She's, she's a friend of mine. Um, I can imagine her saying that. Well, I would say there's an interesting... There's also an interesting distinction. This might be helpful for your readers, listeners, and hopefully my readers uh, to keep in mind too, which is that um, the way people think about Chinese medicine in China is not the same as how they think about it here. And so one thing that um, I just feel like people are forever disappointed in me as a clinician is, is that they always want something, uh, often patients, or if I'm talking to practitioners, I always want something a little bit, they also always want a little bit more of the magic, the non-rational, I think. Something a little bit of more of, and I really went looking for that too as a as a student. You know that there's a sometimes a celebration of the difference here, um, uh, and I think of um, anything that's a little bit more kind of in the spiritual, uh, psychological realm. Patients kind of want that, and practitioners often want to give that, um, but that's not what really drives doctors of Chinese medicine in China. They really want to, they really want to be practical. They want they want results, and or they're less inclined to kind of experiment and go too far into something a little bit kind of new agey, if you will, that would be precisely part of the attraction of Chinese medicine here, uh, here in the West. So uh, I'm, chuckling about, I'm chuckling about that because I think that's also a little bit what's at play is that people want this, especially I think in, in the West, they, they want the, the non-rational. Yes. So, you know, back to purity and hybrid, and I'd like to hear a little more about that. I mean, I get the hybrid piece, the, the purification part. I'd like to hear a bit more. But, but back to this idea that Chinese medicine may not be completely rational, and there's, uh, there's aspects in the States that people would like to get from it. Is that part of the purity of Chinese medicine, or are we actually hybridizing Chinese medicine with our Western mind and our Western psychology and our culture as it is at the moment? I might say that as part of the purity. Well, so to come, maybe to come back, let me come back to that argument a little bit. And um, so part, part of the argument I try to make is that this is very, very obvious. You already made one of those statements, and I, I tried to organize the book around some of these very common little nuggets of wisdom that you hear people say, but this idea that um, Western medicine treats acute diseases and Chinese medicine treats chronic diseases. Another thing you hear very commonly in China is that Western medicine treats structural or organic diseases, depending on how you translate it, but it's referring to almost things like surgery, whereas Chinese medicine treats functional uh, diseases. And I would have people tell me that. They're like, I'd say, is this, I'd ask, I'd ask my doc, my friends, or I'd say, can I treat this with like something I hadn't heard of? I'd call them up and say, can I treat this as the patient came in with this, this, and this, and this? And they'd want to know about, I don't know, x-rays, blood work, et cetera. And uh, they're like, yeah, it sounds like a functional disease. You can you can treat it. <laughs> and um, but those are all ways of kind of where we kind of oppose east to west. And I think it those are all kind of purifications. And I think the uh, the the non rational versus the rational is another way of kind of purifying things and saying. But I think what happens is that at the same time we refer to these purifications. Now the other big one, and this is the whole second half of the book, is that Chinese medicine treats 
patterns. So this is Bien Jungleinger, and Western medicine treats diseases. So that that's sort of a half the book is sort of devoted to like kind of like unpacking that and where did it come from and how to, or why did people say that and uh, that's just something that couldn't have been said a hundred years ago. It couldn't have been said a hundred years ago. No, it could not have. <laughs> because the ter- the terms have shifted. Uh, so uh, now you can, and, and so this is where maybe the book gets a little technical, I, although I think this is maybe where the doctors as readers might be the most interested. And I think the anthropologists might be trailing off at this point. But in the, the kind of the middle or towards the end of the book, I try to kind of give a history of the terms, if you will. And so that, you know, the term for disease in Chinese is Bing, and the term for pattern in Chinese is Zhong. But if you look at those terms, uh, and, and so that's a very, it's a very clear what people mean by that today. Now, one complication is that we can also talk about a Bing in within Chinese medicine, as well as a Bing or disease in Western medicine. So there's a little, that's a little already a little bit murky. But then if you kind of, if you start rolling back the clock, if you will, a hundred years ago, it just, they just didn't mean the same, this didn't mean the same thing. And I think the only way you can really translate this word Zhong, that certainly was around, but it's really as closer to like clinical presentation, a little bit closer to the word symptom, if you will. Although symptom was a, is a new term that comes from Western medicine and that becomes, to get into the academic argument, that becomes sort of like the wedge that sort of helps to, to separate Zhong as a pattern. And this is sort of come from Ted Tapchuk is sort of, though that's, at least that's a term other people use syndrome or manifestation, but that, that notion of pattern it's really sort of a post, it really is emerges in the 1950s uh, as a term and as a description of what Chinese medicine doctors do. And disease diagnosis becomes a description of what Western medicine doctors do. So uh, there's a whole chapter kind of devoted to textbooks, which are written in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s. And I know there's, I know within the, among practitioners in the US, there's a lot of kind of trashing of the textbooks and the rejection of them and people were like, well, we do classical Chinese medicine. We don't do TCM. TCM stands for something that comes from the textbooks. But I find the textbooks kind of a remarkable achievement. And one of the things they did do for better or worse, and in the end, I came down on better. That's, I, I think was, I think was an accomplishment, not without problems though, was that they sort of came up with this. We had, to, again, this is another, one of the, one of the characteristics of Chinese medicine. One of them is we're going to do it. We're going to do diagnosis a different way and we have to name it. And we have to kind of like, describe it and, and kind of put some steps to it, if you will. And that's what's going to be called yeah, don't linger, pattern discrimination, treatment determination, however you'd like to translate that term. And so that is part of the purification. That's part of the purification. We have to say that we do it a certain way and it's different than Western medicine. Uh, of course, but then what you see in the hospital is you see all the ways that the do- doctors make the two of them work, work together. So it's both got to ask Bien Zheng Linger Bian Zheng Lunger both has aspects of purity, but also aspects of hybridness. Absolutely. And so uh, and now I use another kind of academic term in the book, which is this, uh, this term postcolonial. I was wondering about that. I mean, I'm, look, I'm, I'm kind of an old guy, so I hear things postcolonial, decolonialize, and things like this, and I don't really understand it. So I'd, I'd love to, I mean, actually, I want, I want to, maybe this is the moment to to talk about that, or maybe we stick a pin in it and come back later, because I, I really want to make sure that we finish up with this uh, Bing versus Zheng and Bian Zheng Lun Zhi, and like what Bing meant a hundred years ago. Because 
these days, and you talk about this beautifully in the book, where someone will come in and it's like, oh, they got hepatitis. It's a liver disease. And you would watch doctors prescribe herbs, and it was primarily digestive formulas because they were treating the Jung and they were treating a Bing, but it wasn't the Bing named hepatitis. It was the Bing that evolved out of what we call hepatitis, but showed up as a presentation in the body as a digestive issue. But to make sure that they did their due diligence, they threw in some Tai Hu and some Bai Sal and, you know, maybe some uh, Yen Hu Swab. I mean, whatever it is that they think is a good liver herb for air quotes hepatitis, but that's because they were treating a Western named Bing. But the Bing that they were treating was not a disease name. It's almost like the Bing and the Jung. They're two sides of a coin, but they are not separate. Yeah, I think it's a great moment to kind of talk about that word postcolonial and then try to talk about that shift, which is, uh, it, it takes me a couple of chapters to kind of get through it. And, and uh, hopefully it's relatively clear by the end of it. But so just to circle back to kind of an academic, it's an academic term. And we hear about decolonization today as sort of the, the big the big trend, and that's an important idea, but an idea that was a little bit more, but it was preceded by this other idea of post-colonialism, which became kind of popular in the 1990s, so that's how it kind of influenced me, like in academic circles. But, you know, we have, just speaking in broad strokes, we have sort of, we have the colonial moment of European and in China, also Japanese colonialism that kind of leads up from the 19th century on into the first part of the 20th century. The post-colonial moment, which, and it's a term that not all Chinese scholars love to use, but I think it's appropriate here, is really trying to talk about after after decolonization, not the political protests here today, but the decolonization of all the European colonies that happens after World War II, sometimes like early 1947 for India, obviously China, some of different sort we have the we have the but it's happening right after World War II in China, and, and because the Japanese and all the Europeans are leaving, and then we have the Communist Revolution. Uh, but that happening later in Africa in the 1960s, and even as late as 1975, and in certain places, and with sometimes uprisings and, and movements. But so there's a, a sort of political decolonization movement that happens then. But one of the things that sort of scholars uh, are writing about in the in, in the 1990s is that well, we've we kind of got rid of the colonial master, if you will, but we're stuck with all of their kind of that colonial legacy. And it's just sort of being, in some ways, some of the same policies are just being carried on now by native elites, you know. Uh, and so there's a, and you could say, uh, and so in, in China, we have kind of, a, it's, it's not like there was no going back to kind of a a, a world sort of pre, uh, you know, pre-Opium War world. There was no, there's no going back, you know, modern medicine and modern science and all kinds of uh, social policies and all those things were, were coming. Now they're coming in a, in, a, in, a, in a Marxist form, if you will, but they're still coming. It wasn't like the, the it was going to have a Marxist spin on it, but a, a centralized state uh, that controls the nation up to certain boundaries, all, all that was sort of coming. And one of the things that post-colonial scholars like to talk about is how, even though the sort of the colonial master is gone, the reference to Europe, the reference to the West is always there. And that was what was so obvious to me in Chinese medicine. We couldn't do Chinese medicine without always thinking about this Western medicine. So when I was a student, Western medicine was, was always the point of judgment. I was always the, the touchstone for setting this thing. We, we could or couldn't do this thing in Chinese medicine. But I always had to sort of think about, uh, you couldn't 
well, you could start treating a patient with Chinese medicine, but you couldn't, the patient couldn't get out of the hospital without a biomedical diagnosis. That was the part that doctors were clearly so focused on. So the post-colonial moment uh, is a moment where the power relations between the two professions, Western medicine and Chinese medicine, and first of all, the, the two, they kind of narrow down, as I say, but one where it shifts decisively and Western medicine is sort of now going to be on top in China. Chinese medicine is going to be secondary. And that's just, even though there was Western medicine was already in China in the early 20th century, Chinese medicine was just sort of still on top just because the predominance of Chinese medicine doctors and uh, there were so many more, there's at least 10 times more. And in many places in the countryside, there's just no Western medicine at all. So that power relationship, so that I use that term to try to capture that moment, that shift of power relations where Western medicine is on top and Chinese medicine is now, is the second class citizen, if you will. And Bianjung literature is also um, emerging at precisely that moment when that power shift is happening and hospitals are being built precisely at that moment when that power shift is happening. And so if you kind of try to break it down, and this is sort of, I think it's chapter five, where I try to give a like, very extensive look at a case, you just see how the two have to be done together and how Western medicine predominates in kind of the case record and Chinese medicine is kind of added on, if you will. And so there's a whole way in which the two have to, they have to work together. Pinchin Lindro is a way of, both a way of describing what is unique about Chinese medicine. It's certainly, it's very much the purification against sort of a disease diagnosis in biomedicine, but it also has, it also kind of very, or doctor made it work in a way so that it could also kind of work together nicely with Western medicine. So for, for example, we have within a certain disease, let's just go back to hepatitis for a second, you could kind of come up with some common patterns like this in a textbook if you want. You could say, we might have uh, heat and dampness in the, in the spleen, and you might have liver stagnation, and you might have a, a couple other patterns or something. Uh, you might have liver blood stag, uh, stagnation, cheese stag. You know, you might have a couple of different patterns that you could kind of list in a textbook. And that kind of is a way of kind of very conveniently kind of connecting up the two medicines. And that's actually what you really see in the cultural revolution, that way of putting the two together. And to me, it's actually, it's both kind of, it's in many ways, it's exactly what I saw in the hospital a lot. Uh, but it's also, there is a kind of innovativeness to it because it just hadn't been done before. How do you put the two together? Well, they, in many ways, some of those textbooks that emerged uh, in the Cultural Revolution just do that. There's just like the, the gloves were off and we're just going to go ahead and mix it together in certain ways. So that's so to me, that's a post-colonial moment where you really see the purification, the trying to hold the two things apart at times, but also the integration or the hybridization where you can, you can put them together too if you want to. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. 
Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing weld points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. This is so fascinating, Eric, because, and look, I'm no scholar or historian. When I think of the Cultural Revolution, I think of we are completely losing our minds and we're getting rid of anything that has to do of that decadent West. And what I'm hearing you say is there was also a moment where Western medicine, Chinese medicine got glued together in a very profound way. Well, I think it's a period that's hard to do good research on. And so I'm, you know, what I say about it is a, a little bit piecemeal. But but I would just back up and say the, the cultural revolution, as we sort of hear about it in the West, of course, is this very hyperbolic, you know, um, oversimplified kind of thing. And so we just, we just, we tend to, you know, there's all the literature that kind of came out in like in the kind of late 90s and early 2000s, just about sort of in English often that was recounting, you know, the sufferings of different families through the Cultural Revolution, often elite families, highly educated, and how they suffered. And, and certainly that's a big part, certainly that is a part of it, that all happened, uh, but it doesn't totally, it doesn't capture the whole thing. And so I, I wouldn't say it's a, it's not something I'd want to sell it. I want to go, I don't think anyone wants, nobody wants to go back to it, but it, it but it is kind of a, it is a, some fascinating things did happen. And one of the really interesting interviews I had was I, I did interview many doctors that were uh, writing textbooks and the Chinese internal medicine textbook is one of the ones that um, I really followed pretty closely. And that also changed, that's the one that really changed dramatically during the Cultural Revolution. And I remember uh, I finally got to speak to one of the uh, one of the editors of that textbook, somebody who was quite involved in it. And he was involved because he himself had been a what you call it, what we call an integrated medicine doctor, a so a doctor of Western medicine who in the kind of sort of Maoist enthusiasm from blending the two medicines in the late, maybe the late 50s, or early 60s. I, mean, was, I think it was the late 50s. He then was trained, got two to three years of training in Chinese medicine. And uh, so he was a sort of vanguard of this core of doctors that never got to be too big, but they were really trained in both and who were going to like you know, leaned away in something, some remarkable new sort of, uh, Mal, Mal called it new medicine. Uh, but he came out of that program. and Which I think they were saying, I mean, they were calling it an integrated medicine, weren't they? Weren't they calling it integrative medicine basically in Chinese? Zhongxi Jiehe. Zhongxi Jiehe is the, is the name, yeah. And, and that's a name that gets used in a couple of different ways, but one of the very specific ways is to refer to all those doctors. And there was, a, there was kind of a group of them. Many of them went on to be half uh, quite many of them wanted to be quite famous and and quite influential in certain ways. And uh, but they were some of these uh, doctors who in the in the late fifties, early sixties got trained. And sometimes they got, one of the remarkable things is sometimes they got trained by some of the best doctors of Chinese medicine. So they they really got to work with these, uh, which is not what you which is not how I felt like not, not like what I thought I got as part of my education. You don't always necessarily get taught by like these great doctors. So they get taught by some really remarkable doctors. Really learned work closely with some of these doctors and really learned Chinese medicine, already having a, found, a solid foundation in biomedicine and obviously clinical practice. So for the folks who could kind of get into it, not, every, not everyone, a lot of people didn't like it. They didn't want to 
they, they weren't open to that and they were still sort of forced to do it. But there was a, a handful of some of these folks who really took to it and then went on to do some very influential things. And one of them was quite involved in writing this internal medicine text, Chinese internal medicine textbook in the 19, uh, it was kind of late, it was probably like 78, 79. And he was like, he's like, you know, this was later it was criticized because with the fall of the Gang of Four, uh, the rise of Deng Xiaoping the, the, uh, and the reform era, there was a kind of reversion back to kind of what things were pre-cultural revolution. He says, but he was, you know, really hurt by it. He's like, you know, I really thought we did something remarkable with this textbook. Nobody had done this before. And look at how we took some of these biomedical diseases and we showed you how you can treat them with Chinese medicine. Here's our, we're going to break them down into four or five different kind of commonly seen patterns. And uh, again, that's, so that's a very new thing that kind of came out of that. You know, barefoot doctors are another kind of, uh, that's a whole other topic, but that's another, another thing that comes out, of, comes out of that period too. So um, anyways, the, the, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a, it's not something I dive into too much. And there is, there is a very nice book on barefoot doctors uh, written by uh, Felt Shopping uh, for people who want to dive into that a little bit more. But yes, this, uh, I remember in the book you, were, you talk about the textbooks. And, and some of the editions were like, yes, there's a lot of great information. Some of the editions were like, yeah, not as good as the older one. But especially the first two editions, and I think this is what you're speaking to here, we really do see Bian Zheng Lunzhi kind of coming into being. And like, like you said, he, especially I think it was the second revision, where here's some Western disease names and processes and here's ways that we can think about it in Chinese medicine. They were pretty clear about it. And I think in many ways, that is part of the legacy that has come down to us today. Because I think much of our training in school, at least when I was there, I mean, we had all kinds of stuff. Part of it was, look at Chinese and Western medicine this way. Or look at Chinese medicine to treat disease like this. And there's your boxes and flowcharts and this and that. But I would also have teachers who would say, you need to know this. You need to learn this. You need to see how these things work. Don't put your patients in a box. So here's the boxes, and the boxes are helpful, but there's a bigger medicine outside the box. You need to know them both. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, kind of, uh, I think one of the frustrations for people who are, are feel restrained by TCM or whatever they think TCM is, usually it's sort of textbook medicine, is that it just seems to not, it seems too confining, too restraining. But that was, I would say that that seemed to be almost taken for granted that nobody should ever stop with the textbooks. That was just sort of a start. That was like to build the foundation and then you're going to go on and, and figure out how you want to do it. This will just give you a, a place to start. And so but what you do see, what you do see with those early textbooks is and I think also another important thing too to kind of keep in mind is the textbooks. I think mean one thing to like a, a student like you or me um, coming coming at it like in the the nineties, the two thousands, studying Chinese medicine from that, uh, and it means another thing to some of the older doctors that were involved in running them. And so I had one of the great honors was I had a chance to interview Deng Tiatao in Guangzhou, quite famous doctor, advisor to Brenda, who you mentioned earlier. And uh, he was extremely, he was involved in those early editions. He was very proud of uh, some of the things that were there and he would 
tell me about like, you know, look, you know, people forget this, but I, you know, here's what, here's what we, we wrote in the second edition textbook and it's important that they don't do it. And, oh, and I actually remember asking very specifically, I was like, okay, but the, this term, Bien Jung Linger, it's, it's new, right? It's like, I can't find it in any writings of the 1930s or 40s or earlier or anything. It's just not there. And he was, he was very honest. He was like, oh yes, that's a new term that didn't exist. But he said, but the spirit was there. And I think for him, and, and I interpret that as sort of, in a certain sense, as sort of the textbooks for them, I think, capture a, a kind of certain kind of spirit of like the way they learn medicine, which was much more closely tied to some of the classics. But it was also doing this one other thing that I think that, you know, perhaps he didn't quite see so well, but has a much bigger influence on the later generations, which it was, it was sort of fulfilling that post-colonial requirement of making Bien Jung Linder both the thing that's sort of like different than Western medicine, but also the thing where you kind of help, it could help bridge the two in, in that sort of cultural revolution sense or in the hospital, the way you do it in the hospital. And so I think later generations look at the textbooks and they see, they see that thing and they find they're frustrated with Bin Jung Linger as they see it, but they don't think for the, the editors and the authors of those early textbooks. I don't think they meant a different thing to them, partly because they came out of a whole different kind of training and a whole different kind of experience of being practitioners in a moment when Western Chinese medicine was still really the dominant form of medicine. Western medicine didn't have all these therapies and options and it was a much less technical medicine. And, um, you know, so I, I think it, this is my interpretation, of course, uh, uh, reading his comments, but, but I think that, I think that my guess is that probably captures it. Like it, it felt like a very much a continuation for those editors, but I think for later generations, I feel it can feel like a break. And yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of how I, that's sort of how I experienced it too. I said, I mean, as a student, I was like, there's something crazy about this. This, I can tell this is brand new. Like I could just read between the lines and say, this is obviously not the way Chinese medicine has always been done, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't say why. I couldn't explain how it changed or, or any of that for the years and years. And that's where some of all the, some of the like historical work then kind of came in to help kind of like fill in those gaps. I could, I could sense it, but but couldn't couldn't explain it. Well, I am I am grateful for your noticing that as a as a younger person, younger doctor in, in the process of learning and holding that question because it over the years evolved into this book. You know, I'm so fascinated by and I see this all over the place, all the time, how the solution of one moment, like here's an amazing innovation, right? These doctors in the 60s, the second, you know, the second revision of, of that book. And they come up with this idea. They kind of glue these different pieces together, and and it gives them a way of going forward and also being connected to the past. But they've also created something new. Anytime we create something new, ooh, new solution, right? And it works in that moment, and it's helpful. It sets up problem down the way. All of our solutions. I think Chip Chase said this. I think this is where I first heard he said, you know. All solutions are temporary, <laughs> right? And let me just finish this thought. It seems to me in some ways, and I'm speaking about here in the West, we're kind of going through our own, I'm going to use your term, purification process. Well, you know, our, our medicine's not TCM, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're the real or we're the classic or we're the, you know, fill in the blank. Okay, you could use that as marketing, you can use that as a way of creating an identity, but you know, whatever. But in reading your book, it seems to me that we're going through our own modern moment 
of what we purify, what we hybridize, and how we use that as kind of an identity for who we are as a practitioner. Yeah, I think you're right on with that comment. And I would say we're we're very much part of that post-colonial moment in the West, but in a, with, a, with a slightly different kind of like um, flourish, if you will. Uh, these debates about traditional and classical Chinese medicine are, are the classic example because those are terms that don't even exist in China that nobody nobody knows what that means, and uh, so uh, but it, so I think we're very much part of that legacy for sure. And uh, you know, but I like your point about innovation, which is really important. And um, and, and I don't know if I make it strongly enough in the book, but if we were to if we were to go if you if you were to go back and look, you could take all the doctors that I got to interview. As examples, Don Tao, for example, all those doctors, as I mentioned, they came well known. They became they, the reasons they were maybe invited to participate in textbook editing, the textbook editing in the in the early '60s, or the reason why they became maybe leaders in their hospitals or wherever they were, was because they were quite, they were quite successful. And they and we know that they were successful in the Republican period because they were successful treating all these acute illnesses. So that's what they did. They didn't. There wasn't a whole lot of. I mean, they, sure, they did some chronic but diseases, but there wasn't a whole lot of that around because that's just people couldn't afford it. That's just it was a whole different marketplace, if you will, of medicine. But in the in the communist period, they all become masters at some sort of chronic disease. So Don Tao, uh, to give an example, becomes very famous for his treatments of myasthenia uh, gravis. Chang Chi, who was up in uh, Harbin becomes very famous for treating kidney insufficient, renal insufficiency. Uh, I mean, all of them, uh, cancer, uh, what, ha- what have you, uh, heart disease, they all become very proficient at treating these chronic diseases that you know they didn't probably treat that much of as a young doctor, but as that sort of acute medicine part is sort of taken away just by the, by the development of the whole medical institutions in, in China, they develop these other ex- expertises, and and it's an ex- and, and part of that expertise also is pulling in, bringing a, a kind of knowledge of Western medicine into that. So if they hadn't if they hadn't studied Western medicine in, in the in the Republican era, they uh, so they certainly did in the communist era, and so they then find ways to kind of bring that into their practice to help you know guide and shape and uh, condition the way they become master treating these disease these Western medicine diseases with with Chinese medicine. So there's just sort of these multiple layers of innovation that uh, that are happening, and um, and so if you kind of can step back and see that, it's it's a remarkable story, and that's sort of that's how how I came to see it at the end, as, which is actually not how I started, and in some ways the the post colonial thing was was an idea I had on early on, but to me I just want the story I wanted to tell was how Chinese medicine was oppressed. It was oppressed in these maybe complicated ways. It was oppressed by the biomedical profession. It was oppressed by very biased government officials. It was oppressed by all these different forces in the country, in the world. And towards the end, uh, of course, and of course that is very true. What was even more powerful to me was all the innovation and all the successes that happened sort of in, in spite of that. And uh, it took me a long time to kind of, this, I, I think to appreciate that, uh, but that was sort of the, at the when I, when I finally got to like writing it and finishing it and all that, that was the story, the story that I realized was the, the really important one to me, which was how impressive it was. Eric, I listened to you say this. You started off with one idea. You kind of had an axe to grind. Okay, you had a narrative. I want to. Pr- I got this idea, and I'm going to go prove it. And you go and do the work, and you come away from it thinking, "Oh, there's a lot more to it than I thought there was." This is probably the best reason why 
anybody should read this book is because it will take them on the journey that you went through. And you start in one place and you honestly end up in another. That, that to me is the mark of a true scientist, whether it's hard sciences or social sciences. You start in one place, you've got an idea, you do the work and you go, huh, turns out to be like that. How about that? Well, it is very much a kind of a, an accounting of my own journey, both as kind of doctor in training and anthropologist in training, if you will, and, 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 and something of a historian in training too. And I did truly end up in a place I, I did start in. You know, I, I started and probably, I don't think it would be that different than uh, others coming in as an anthropologist. I don't think I would be that different than anyone else coming in. Uh, Brenda, uh, I don't think, I think it was the same too. All of the foreign students that came to study uh, Chinese medicine and uh, in the 1990s in China, we were, we were all mad about studying Western medicine. We're like, we're here for Chinese medicine. Why do we have to spend all this time learning biochemistry, pathology? Uh, how is that going to help us be a doctor of of, of Chinese medicine? And uh, and so that was a bit of the axe, the grind. I was just we were, we were frustrated. And then somewhere along the line, one of my teachers said to me, uh, maybe Brenda was even there. <laughs> we were just complaining, like, what you know, why do we have to spend so, so much time in these courses? It's so it's already so hard. We just want to do this one thing. And uh, and he just looked at me and he said, what's what's wrong with you guys? Like, isn't it always better to learn two languages rather than one? And it was such a simple statement. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I cannot, I could not refute that statement. And uh, so, yeah, so I had, and, you know, and as an anthropologist too, like we always like want to respect what anyone locally is tell, telling us. And so uh, um, I had to, I had to kind of like, I had to, I had to come around, but, you know, the, but again, the, the more I, the more I looked at it, the more, that was really, it, it took, it took some time, but the, the more impressed I, I came away and, and I think that gets me, Maybe back to the title of the book, the last chapter, the last big chapter called Prescriptions for Virtuosity. And to me, that kind of captured like the really key point, which is that, you know, I was kind of caught up in, you know, some sort of struggle. And it is, I think there, it has been a true struggle for the profession in China, no, no doubt about it. And I wanted to kind of make my mark, maybe writing something that would contribute to that. But at the end, I think what really matters is, again, your cl is clinical practice. And how will you do it? And you know, you can do, and you can be really, you can be a virtuoso in many different ways. You can, and that that may be sort of, you may be a virtuoso by by virtue of I don't know being a specialist on the treaties of cold damage, but you may also be really great because you like, you're just like super innovative in the way you combine Western medicine and Chinese medicine and the way you look at a at a at a particular disease and take what you need from from biomedicine to kind of get a better Chinese medicine result. And so in the end, I think it's really about, uh, now so I think I met plenty of doctors that I wouldn't consider to be virtuoso doctors, but I've also met plenty that were. And I think the, and the, I felt like the thing that united them all was that they're just really good at their craft, although they may have approached it in some very different ways. Some of them, you know, some doctors that I knew were extremely good clinically, they're just so proud of like, how much biomedicine had come into it, you know, or, you know, and I could teach this to, you know, they'd be telling me I could teach this to any, any orthopedic, any orthopedic doctor, he could do it too, you know, or something like that. I was like, that's maybe not where I came, not where I came politically uh, into the project, but, um, but in the end, you know, I really felt like this uh, about the craft of it and 
And so that's sort of where I hope to end with the book was to really celebrate that virtuosity, which I think can happen in a lot of, and you could be, you could be a, a virtuoso even through the hybridity. Absolutely. Well, look, you talk about those Republican doctors that had virtuosity in treating acute disease. The times they change, the culture, it changes, whether it's political or you have influences like Western medicine that are powerful, right? And they change with the time and now they become virtuosos in treating chronic disease or maybe even combining things in a more integrative way. So I, you know, I'm going to take that as, uh, I'm going to take that as a, a challenge to stay open-minded in terms of what might my practice be like and what might be useful. And of course, I think it comes down to in the end, what's helpful for our patients. Yeah. And I, and I think it is a challenge. I think, you know, um, I do think it's so easy, even for, and I find this very interesting, but it, yeah, I think even for doctors of Chinese medicine to get trapped in a kind of, in a certain framework and a certain way of doing it. Sometimes I've had this experience of sort of, sort of trying to teach some of the just pure kind of clinical stuff. Some of the clinical things I've learned, I've had people just sort of shake their heads like, no, I'm not going to do my acupuncture that way. Uh, and it's like, well, it really works. Uh, but I think we, I think we become, we can become quite rigid. Uh, sometimes I think, again, this is part of the, the post-colonial kind of purity, hybridity sort of dynamics that are molding us. And uh, sometimes I step back and I, and I think, God, I thought, you know, probably all of us got into Chinese medicine because it wasn't alternative medicine. It was different. We wanted to break away from conventional medicine in some form, but yet then we later kind of can get trapped in, in, in our own ways of doing things. And Chinese medicine must be this, and it can't be that. And I think that was sort of one of the one of the, one of the one of the lessons that that I that I had to learn many, many times, and I'm admittedly I think still learning it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Hua Dalao, Shui Dalao, right? Keep learning your whole life long. Well, Eric, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I enjoyed the book immensely. It's been even more fun to have this hour or so with you to uh, go into it more, and uh, so appreciate your scholarship your sense of humor and in and some really helpful structures that you've given me through the book to be able to, to think about the medicine in a larger context. So, so thanks for everything you do. And, and I can't wait to see what else you come up with from your sojourn in Taiwan. Uh, yep. Well, hopefully yeah, I got some, got some new things that are uh, I'm working on for the next book, but I hope this, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about it. And I hope at least for practitioners, this can be a book that will um, help them kind of give a, I think, a, a deeper or more well-rounded appreciation of the medicine they're doing and where it comes from. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time then. Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait. When I lived in Beijing and would sit with my teachers in the digestive disorders clinic and try to parse out how they intertwine Chinese herbs with ultrasounds and pharmaceutical drugs. I wondered if I'd be able to parse out the effects of herbs from the effects of pharmaceuticals. I did not realize, as Eric points out, that these doctors were practicing a hybridized medicine, which is the Chinese way of saying integrated medicine, 
was actually a different animal than what I'd learned in school. And while I did learn a few things about herbs, it turns out I was not able to disentangle the Chinese medicine piece in a purified way. Much like in our clinics today, our patients are often using a combination of different treatments when they come to see us. It's the current way of the world. What struck me from Eric's book was the fact that Western medicine, for a variety of reasons, has become the medicine that people turn towards first. Even with its drawbacks that we might spend a little too much time complaining about, it's the dominant player in healthcare and probably will be for the foreseeable future. How does that affect us as East Asian medicine practitioners? That's a story that's still being written. The trends toward purity and hybridization, for sure, these are powerful influences, and there's plenty of room to explore either path, depending on your interest. The future is being written out of the influences of today. I'd be surprised if we weren't surprised. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.